I think all of you know, we've been in the book of Mark for some time now and working on closing it down within the next month or so, but not really closed down. It's just the beginning of another chapter in the Bible, particularly the book of Acts and the life of the church flowing out of the gospel message. We won't take that up immediately, but sometime in the near future we probably will. We will pick up as we have over the last couple of years with a verse-by-verse exposition, and we'll take up our reading this morning in verse number 33. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the Word of God. And we'll read a few verses here and then go to the Lord in prayer. Verse number 33, we read by the pen of Mark, according to the Spirit of God. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again just to ask for help. Father, in some sense, we need more than help. We need help in the sense of total incapability. Father, we need you to work in our lives this morning. Father, we need to be fed by your word. We need your spirit of God to make um, things alive. We need um, darkness to turn into light, Father. We need, um, even as believers, uh, faith to continue to believe, Father. We need to be sustained. We trust that in Christ we have all of those blessings. We're reminded of Romans chapter number 8, Father, who who Paul so eloquently yet yet spirit-filled Um, wrote to us, Father, just encouraging us and those that are in Christ, Father, that if um, he gave us his only son, how shall he not freely with him give us all things? So, Father, we rest in that this morning. We rest in just the the total grace of God, Uh, no effort of our own, Father. And we look to you, even as we go to the word, Father, to to do the work. Um, Father, um, we strive to be faithful and meet you there. But knowing that even, Father, um, when we move forward in the, in the Christian life, Father, and sanctified, we are sanctified by you. We are sanctified by your truth. We are sanctified, Father, by your spirit, according to the grace and the power that is in Christ. So, Father, we know that we live, yet we don't. But Christ lives in us. So we pray this morning, Father, that um, he would live in a very manifest way. That he would take the word of God, Father, and make it alive in our souls. Um, that we would abide in him and that he would abide in us, Father, through the, in the next um, uh, several moments, Father, to the hour. And that that would be just the continual pattern of our lives. Father, um, go with us now. Father, help me. Give me this morning, Father, just total dependence upon you and your spirit. Uh, Father, just um, give me a pastor's heart. Um, Lord, we know that um, your word exhorts pastors to feed the flock to care for the flock to protect the flock and if the lord would will lay his life down for the flock no measure would that be like christ but father if um, if it's required would you give us the strength to do that 
Would you give us the strength this morning, Father, just to, um, to feed the flock of God, um, to nurture them, Father, with the word of God, uh, to simply set the table, Father, truly knowing that it is not we that feed, but you. So, Father, would you help the body this morning to feed on Christ, to draw faith from him, to rest in the hope that is in him, Father. And may this text point us ultimately to him. May Jesus Christ be exalted, Father. That is truly what I desire. And I pray that you would just strengthen that desire in all areas of my life. So, Father, we give this time to you now. We give this time to you now. In the name of your Son, Father, according to the power of the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Again, we come back to the book of Mark and we just pick up where we left off. I know that I read and began with verse number 33 and 34, just to somewhat lay the context. But several weeks ago on Easter morning, we took up particularly verse 33 and 34, and specifically honed in on that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we'll pick up really the exposition or the explanation of the scriptures this morning, beginning with verse number 35. But at the same time, I never want to divorce the account from the greater account, right? And I know that you know what's going on here, chances are, but, maybe, but oftentimes we need to be reminded. Um, so where we find ourselves right now in the gospel account, according to Mark, um, is in Passion Week. But it's more than just Passion Week. It's more than just the last hours of our Lord's life. We are now, as we pick up in verse 33, particularly in verse 35, we are in the last moments of his humanity. I mean, it is in this text that he will cry out. It is in this text that he will give up the ghost. He will commend his spirit to the Father. Um, up to this point, our Lord has set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem after 33 years approximately of his life, uh, most of which was private the last three and a half years. Um, he's given himself to, um, to, to public ministry, preaching the gospel, particularly to the nation of Israel, which will eventually go to the Gentiles as accomplished by and through him. Um, the last year and a half of his ministry seems to be more focused in on his disciples. Um, but this last week, um, really commending himself to the ultimate work that he came to accomplish. That's not to diminish the first 33 years of his life. Um, always accruing righteousness um, and fulfilling all points of the law, all that Adam could not and would not do and all that Israel could not and would not do. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does. Um, by the will of the Father and on our behalf. Um, he's, already, he's been in the temple. He's flipped the, 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 the money changers. He's riled up the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and all of the religious elite. He stood before Pilate. He stood before the Sanhedrin six times. He was tried in different respects. Um, he's been sentenced to death on the charge of blasphemy. And the charge is being carried out in a true manifest way. He's walked up Golgotha. He's carried his own cross. It's been carried by others. He's been spat upon. He's been beaten. He's been bruised. They've played games with his life. Um, he's hang hanging at this moment up on a cross. Um, nails in his hands and nails in his feet. And still they stand around him and berate him. Approximately three hours ago in the text, as we go to verse 35, and the text says that on the sixth hour had come, God speaks. 
Not an audible voice necessarily, but with a blanket of darkness that falls upon the face of the earth. It's reminiscent of the final plague um, in which the, which the first son of all those who did not have um, the, the, the blood placed upon the doorposts and the lentils um, would be required. Um, and here we see, just as that darkness fell, and it was a true palpable darkness, and God spoke in that darkness, there's no doubt in my mind that in this text, and in reality, and during that time, that darkness fell upon the face of the earth, and, and it was a way of God speaking, in which it was felt. Um, there's seemingly silence for the next three hours until our Lord um, would speak up and take His final breath, and we looked at that. Um, great um, statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and it's a direct quote from Psalm chapter number 22. And David spoke it there, but we know that it was pointing towards a greater than David. Um, a covenant would be made with him that would speak of a man that would come. Um, the God man that would be greater than. And he would do things that David never could. He would rule greater than David. He would sit on David's throne at the right hand of God the Father. And he would rule and reign forevermore. Um, the nations would be given to him out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. The peoples um, of God would be bought with a price, and that price would be his own blood. As he came to do the will of the Father, and here he is completing that work. Completing that work. I'm going to give you three things this morning, and then we'll try to apply it. Number one, we see in the text the weakness of Christ. Um, it's seen in his humanity, the reality that he thirsted, the weakness of Christ. And number two, we see the work of Christ. It's completed. We see that in the reality that he says it's finished. It is finished. Um, the work of Christ is complete in this text. And finally, we'll get to the witness of Christ's work. Um, and that's in the reality that the veil is torn rent into the witness of Christ's work. Um, number one, the weakness of Christ. It's seen in his humanity. He thirsted. Verse number 35, let's pick up. After he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the text says, some of those who stood by then, they heard that, said, look, he is calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. So what you see is you see the games continue. In some sense, you see the berating continue. It's never enough for those that are surrounding Christ there at the cross. Many have abandoned him as disciples. He's essentially alone. No doubt, though, that, that Rome is still there to finish the job. And there also seems to be um, some of the possibly religious elite, if nothing else, the Jewish uh, bystanders. That's what we see there in verse number 35. Some of those who stood by, you may have a translation that just says bystanders. When they heard that, heard what? That phrase that he called out, that great cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some um, who stood by heard that and looked and said, he is calling for Elijah. Um, the, the, the bystanders' identity is probably not um, debated and they're referring to Elijah. No doubt these are Jewish people, possibly religious elite, who continue on berating um, our Lord. And they, they do it by saying that he's calling for Elijah. And saying that phrase, Eloi, Eloi, it's Aramaic uh, form of, 
of my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It seems that some of those bystanders either uh, didn't listen to him or they misunderstood him as he, he cried out. Um, because they, they interpreted the phrase to mean that Elijah was coming. Um, it, and that is a possibility simply that they misunderstood. Um, some of the same syllables that are there could be made up of Elijah's name in Aramaic. And it was a very popular idea that during the time that the kingdom would be set up, that Elijah would come to restore all things. Um, it, later, Jewish piety um, included that, and there was old folklore that, that Elijah was the patriot saint of suffering, that he was possibly calling upon him for that. For whatever reason, what we see in the text is we see a group of people that misunderstand um, the, the, the statement that our Lord makes and come to the conclusion that he said that Elijah would come and that Elijah, he was calling for Elijah and that it is possible that they believe that Elijah would come um, to, to restore all things or the kingdom that was um, to come. So some, in verse number 36, run and fill a sponge full of sour wine. They put it on a reed and they offer it to him in the drink saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. They believed that it seems just from their actions and from what they said that they believe that he's calling on Elijah particularly to be saved. They've already berated him about that. They've already ridiculed him about that. I mean, if, if, if you are God's son, then call upon him to bring you down. And maybe they believe they've broke our Lord at this time such that he is calling upon Elijah to come and to rescue him. So someone runs and fills a sponge full of sour wine. Sour wine would have been a very diluted vinegar type of wine. It's, it was inexpensive in nature. Chances are um, that the Roman soldiers actually had it there in a bucket ready to go. They would have quenched their thirst through um, the crucifixion. Someone grabs a reed, puts it on a stick, elevates it up to our Lord's uh, mouth, thus that he can drink. I mean, what an act of kindness, right? Um, a dying man just helping them out. It doesn't seem so, though, from Mark's perspective. It seems that the, the, the sufferings are carried on. It seems that it's a continual berating and ridiculing of, of our, our Lord. And it may, it may very well be just curiosity, you know, um, that maybe he is calling upon Elijah. Let us let him live long enough to see if Elijah will come to save him. That's what it seems with the phrase there. Um, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and bring him down. Um, that the ridicule seems to carry on. Thus, um, they offer him a drink. But, 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 but the reality is, is that they actually offer him a drink, possibly for that, but also um, for another reason. If you were to turn to John chapter number uh, 19, you would see um, a different account of the same a different perspective of the same account as John recounts um, our Lord's death as well. In John chapter number 19 and verse number 28, you read these words. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... It is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up the spirits. Um, why did they give him sour wine? Because simply because 
He said, I thirst. I thirst. Why does he say, I thirst? The scripture tells us in John chapter number 19 um, to fulfill all scripture. Verse number 28, um, it's, 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 it's intriguing, really. Um, it's really an interesting thing to think about. Our Lord here maintains such a strength of mind to point to the, the reality that he expresses um, concern not for himself alone and his humanity, um, but even for the primacy of God's word. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. Um, even in his greatest agony, even um, in his humanity, even in his utter weakness, um, or in the injustice of, uh, in, in the midst of the injustice of man, um, he has seemingly, a hum- from a human perspective, the, uh, an excuse to cast off um, any uh, necessity of, of this or that. And most people will understand. I mean, he's at his death. Yet our Lord maintains such a strength of mind that he says, um, I'm doing that, 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 that he, he, he carries out the will of God, even in the midst of all the agony and suffering. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, I'm too weak. He doesn't say this or that. He says, I've got a work to do. I'm going to complete that work. And thus, the primacy of God's word, the will of the Father directs him. Right? It's a, his sufferings are, 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 are not greater than the will of God. It's not greater than the demands of the law. It's not greater than the decree of the Father um, or the work that God has sent him to do. He knew that the Father desired. He knew that um, he had a work to do, and he understood the Scriptures. Thus, he says, I thirst, fulfilling possibly Psalm chapter 69 as well as Psalm chapter number 22, and where, his, where his tongue was cleaving to the roof of his mouth. That our Lord and Savior here upon the cross as he's dying about to give his last breath still is concerned with the will of God and with the will of the Father and with the, the work that he has to do. No excuses about it. You know, he's almost to complete everything that is to be accomplished. And thus he continues to labor even in his last moments for you, for me. Also, he says, I thirst. You know why? Because he was thirsty. <laughs> um, there's no doubt here that there is a, a significant reminder of our Lord's humanity. Our Lord was just like us. And the crucifixion was brutal. And one of the maladies that comes with the crucifixion that even speeds up the de- dying process is dehydration. There's no doubt in my mind that here that God fully God, Jesus Christ fully God, yet also at the same time fully man, um, is feeling the weight of his humanity as he is suffering. And part of that suffering is thirsting. Thus he says, I thirst. Why? Because he was truly thirsty. He was dehydrated. He was on his, his, his way to death. And that was a part of that dying process as he would take upon the sin of all mankind. Thus he says, I thirst. Why? To fulfill all of Scripture yet at the same time. And, and it could be that to fulfill all of Scripture could be, in some sense, that part of being a man. Not just fulfilling a particular Scripture Um, such as Psalm 69 and Psalm 22. But it could be more of the promise that he would come as the seed of David, the seed of Adam, and he would be fully God, yet at the same time, fully man. Thus, he would carry out the work that God had given him to do. And part of that work was to suffer and even thirst like us, to hunger like us, to sleep as us, to grow weary like us, and thus become fully man. As Hebrews would say, he would share and like us in all, all points. John also gives us something that Mark doesn't. This other saying of Christ. 
As we come to John's account in John chapter number 19, I mean, you, you may have noticed that in Mark chapter number 15 and verse number 27 that our Lord cries out with a loud voice and he breathes his last. The crying out here in Mark seems to take form explicitly in John chapter 19 with those words, it is finished. That the crying out of Mark's gospel is the crying out of John's with him on that cross saying, it is finished. He gave up his spirit after that. It could very well be that in our Lord's humanity, that as his tongue cleaved to the roof of his mouth, he thirsted because he wanted to moisten up his mouth thus that he could proclaim the finality of the work that God had came and given him to do. Um, it could be that he thirsted and that he needed to quench that thirst thus that he could make possibly the greatest proclamation um, in all of Scripture. That the work that he came to do was in that moment complete. We see the work, the, the weakness of Christ in His humanity, that He's fully God, yet fully man. And we see it in His sufferings and the fact that He thirsted. But just as a man needs, in some sense, water to, to, to sustain Him, but even at moments to talk, he, it could very well be that He takes upon Him that, um, that, that, that thirst, or that, that thirst provokes Him um, to, to gather a drink. Why? So that He could say um, one more thing. It's finished. Number two, the work's completed. The work of Christ is complete. And it's complete in the reality that he says it is finished. Here in John chapter number 19, verse number 30. Jesus goes from a great cry of agony and dereliction to a more calm and serene, I thirst. Why? So that he can... Go forth with a great triumph, a great cry of triumph. It is finished. It's like a roller coaster on the cross. Um, and our Lord in His humanity is, 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 is agonizing, yet at the same time declaring victory. Calm and serene at times, yet at the same time um, calling forth for triumph. Why? Because it's done. That's what the word means. You've probably seen it on t-shirts. It's a, it's a great quote that you know, people love to carry around today and plaster um, all over uh, the place. But um, we truly need to understand what the word means. It's to telestai. It's, it's, it's one word here. It is finished. Is one original word that carries with it the idea that it is done. It is finished. It gives the, the idea that, that, that the goal is reached. It means the completed task. It means to accomplish something. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 4 when he says, I fought a good fight, I finished the race. It's done. The reason that I have been created in some sense, my ministry's done, Timothy. I fought it. The fight is finished. The race is done. I've kept the faith. He accomplished the goal. He was ready to go um, because what God had called him here to do, he had done. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, the same word is used. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Something's done. It's finished. There's nothing else to do. He's perfected it. He's brought it to completion. The end game is done. It, it could be translated, it has been accomplished. Commentators, Christians throughout the ages have said that, uh, that this form 
Um, is used in common legal documents in the first century, meaning to execute a deed in a proper way, to complete something by putting a signature and a date on it. It's where we get the idea, the concept of paid in full. The transaction's done, it's completed, it's signed, it's dated. It's like uh, paying off the debt of your home after however long you have, 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 have traveled through that drudgery. And finally, you receive the deed at the end because it's paid in full. There's no more debt to be accrued. There's no more debt to be paid. There's no more transactions out of the account. It's done. It's yours. That's the idea here. Jesus is saying something is done. It's complete. It's in its fullness. The transaction has been paid in full. It's over. So what is he talking about? His sufferings? No doubt. He breathed his last. In my hands I commit my spirit. He drank the cup, the fullness of the wrath of God. And his, his work on the cross is no doubt done. He will suffer no more. It's complete. Yet at the same time, those were just the means to an end, right? I guess that's done, but there's more done. Um, his sufferings are over, yet, yet, yet they accomplish something. What do they accomplish? The redemption of all of mankind, the goal of human history, we could say, right? That, 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 that the goal has always been um, to, to save a people for himself, that God would have a people who were not a people, and that he would save that people for himself. And here he is on Calvary, it's finished, it's done, what's done in one sense, the whole scope of redemptive history. From the very beginning to its end, it's done. All the pictures of the Old Testament that were, that, that, that were truly birthed in the Garden of Eden, but, but even prior to that in the very mind of God, they're no longer necessary. Now the substance of the pictures is, is there. The animal skins in the garden, the blood of bulls and goats and that were taken to the tabernacle, the temple, every year, every moment, every image, every promise, every person that was ever a type of Christ from Adam to David and everywhere in between. The law had a goal. The old covenant had a goal. Everything was to point to Christ. The point was the Messiah. That there was a process being laid out for thousands of years. And everything was pointing towards this one thing, this Messiah that would come and he would save a people for himself, that the goal has always been redemption, buying a people for himself. And here Christ says it's done. It's finished. The goal is complete in the accomplishment of our salvation. It's done. John 17, 4, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That, that, that final high priestly prayer of our Lord as he goes and he prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for his disciples. He prays for those that would believe. And it's interesting that even in John 17, 4, he says it's done. The work is done. There's a sense in which it was as good as done, possibly. The same idea of Romans chapter 8 and 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the, force, uh, the, the firstborn among many brethren. And then he goes on that, that chain of redemption, that those who are called are justified, and those who are justified will, will, are glorified. And that those who are called are, just as, are, are as good as glorified, yet they are not yet. 
That the work of Christ was yet to be complete, yet in the mind of God, and in some sense, it was, it was as good as done. Such that Hebrews 10.10 could argue that by, that by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of one body of Jesus Christ once for all. And not just those post-Christ, but even those pre-Christ. That His will was to be accomplished in time and reality, but, but, but in some sense it was as good as done. Why? Because the debt was to be paid by one who would not break the covenant. The people of God had broken covenant all throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus Christ would not. He would keep the covenant. He would keep the covenant with the Father. Um, he would keep the covenant that He had made. He would keep His, his promises. And thus, um, even those prior to His death would be secure. And he, he accomplished, it's done, the salvation of all of God's people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. We're born into this world as enemies of God. And through the blood of the cross, God Himself has reconciled us to the Father if we come by faith and by repentance, that it's done. His work is done. Not just His life is lived and not just His sufferings are over, but everything up to that point was pointing towards that. The work of Christ, and it's finished. It's complete. It's totally done. We not only see that the work is complete, and we also see the witness of Christ's victory. Or the work that he had completed. And the reality that the veil is torn. Uh, Mark chapter 15 and verse number 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Um, Luke chapter 23 and verse 47, 46 says that when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said that, he breathed his last. The darkness was gone in some sense. He cries out to the Father, no doubt in communion with him. And he says, I'm done. And his spirit is committed to the Father. And he breathes his last. His lungs cease. His heart stops. And he truly dies. Um, and in correlation with that, a miraculous thing happens across town. The veil, the text says, is torn into from top to bottom. What veil? The veil that is within the temple. And there's no doubt that this is a central event in, in the narrative. And it's no doubt that it's something that, that we should read not just as a passing comment, but as, as something that is central to the, idea, to, to the concept of Christ, to the on, concept of it is finished, to the concept of Christianity. That the Father, as He spoke in darkness, is now speaking again, maybe not in audible voice, but He's speaking in an action that He carries out of His own sovereign accord, in which, in correlation with Christ's last breath, what we find is that a veil is torn from top to bottom. What veil? The veil that's within the temple. Um, and there's some debate upon which veil. You may or may not know that there's an outer veil within the temple, in the, in the primary sanctuary, and there's a veil within the temple. Uh, particularly in the center or in the, um, the, 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 the primary portion, um, towards the midst of it. That place that we would refer to as the Holy of Holies. 
It's that place that under the old covenant that the high priest once a year would enter in and he would go in behind the veil. That it would be that place in which the very manifest presence of God would be made known. It's that place where the high priest would take a, an unblemished, a spotless lamb, the, the blood of it, and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat to make an atonement for the sins of the people. And he would only be allowed to do that once a year, and he would be uh, employed and prescribed to do that every year. Why? To make an atonement. A, uh, kids, it's a covering for the sins of the people. We learn from Hebrews, though, that, that, that not one blood of bulls or goats and no lamb, um, all of the thousands, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that were brought up to that point. He, the author of Hebrews is very explicit. There's not, not one ounce and not gallons and not rivers of any of that blood ever accomplished the salvation of one soul or even part of it. But they were all pictures. They were pictures of that one person that would come, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one called of God, true Israel, the second Adam, the last man and that would come in and he would, it, it, it was picturing and shadowing that. But until then, our Lord gave a gracious um, gift to the people of God in the tabernacle and in the temple and this concept of God's presence among them. And yet at the same time, um, it was one of the greatest cursings upon the people of God as well, right? Everybody wants to find God. Yet, when they find Him, He's never what they thought He would be, you know? And in some respect, it's the greatest day of your life. And yet at the same respect... Um, all throughout Scripture, you find that it was the most fearful of some men's lives. You know? Finding God. Where is He? Everybody's on this pursuit. It's as if they think God is lost. You know? We understand the terminology, but if you were to, to, to provoke someone's thinking who is totally uninformed about Christianity and, 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 and God... Um, you might think that God is lost and we must be on this pursuit to find Him by recognizing that God is always and ever-present. It's not that he, he, He's lost, it's that we are. And then in some sense, it's not even that we're lost. <laughs> he knows exactly where we are, right? But what we mean when we use that type of language is, is that man is apart from God. He's separated from God. And why? Because of his sin. And that when a sinner finds God, it could be the greatest day of his life, but it could also be the scariest. I can tell you that there was a time in my life, probably for the first 15, 16, 20 years, um, in which I knew there was a God. It wasn't that I needed to find Him. It was that I was scared to death of Him. One of the earliest memories that I have as a young boy is, is waking up with dreams of the end. You know, Knowing that I was wrong with Him. Now, knowing that I was apart from Him, knowing that I needed to be somehow, not knowing how, but I needed to be reconciled to Him, even as a, as a young boy, you know, five, six, seven years old, having this conscience about me, looking into the world and knowing that God created the heavens and the earth and they display the glory of God and that, that, that written upon even as a young man, as a young boy, as a child, that there was this, this, this morality about me that was not my own and I knew I was wrong and I knew that I dishonored my parents and I knew that I lied and I knew that I stole and I knew that it was wrong. 
And I knew that I was rebellious at heart, and I knew that I needed to be saved. I just didn't know how. You know, that in finding God, I'd found, I'd found almost a, 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 in my own concept, this, this, this justice figure, and I knew that I was wrong, you know. And I have people telling me, you need to go to him, and I'm thinking, why? I grew up in the projects. You don't go turn yourself in, you know. Um, you, don't, you don't go confess a crime that nobody knows about so that you can end up in bondage and slavery in a prison for the rest of your life being taken away from your family. You don't do that from, from, a, from my perspective and in the concept that I had grown up with. Um, I had found him, but I had not found him as Christ, as the Redeemer. Um, that, that, that the reality of God's omniscience, his omnipresence, is, is, is just a blessing to the people of God. And yet, at the same time, it's one of the scariest things that you'll ever understand apart from Him. You know? As a believer, it's a blessing to know that Christ is there and that He's a refuge and that I can run to Him and that He will provide every need. Yet, as an unbeliever, as a man apart from God, man, He is everywhere. There is no place that I can go that He will not be there. There is no uh, inch of my heart. There is no cave or crevice in which I can hide in my inner man. He knows the very secrets of it. And on that final day, they will all be made known and made manifest. That when you find this God, you find a God who is not only compassion and grace, I pray, but also holy and justice. And our first inclination is to run from it. And, And in some sense, you see that in the temple. You see that here in... You see that here in even our text. You see that in relationship to the old covenant people that the temple was this reminder constantly of the separation between God and man. That there was a blessing in that He would come and dwell with man, yet at the same time, um, that this, this, this God is seemingly unapproachable. Um, and that when you do approach Him, you have to approach Him on His grounds and not yours. While He's ever-present, He doesn't always simply manifest Himself everywhere in the same way. But particularly here, in the Old Covenant, in the Temple. And you see that separation particularly in the veil. Um, You see it in the, the need for a sacrifice. You see it in the reality that only one man could go once a year and atone for the sins of the people. Um, that 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 it it reinforced this concept of of you know, Isaiah chapter number fifty nine that we are separated because we sin against our God and that that sin needs to be made right. But as long as the the veil is there, we're we're separated from the presence of God. So the statement that is being made in Mark's gospel, John's gospel, three of the gospels particularly, um, is or is that that. That the veil is being destroyed in some sense. That, that that which used to separate you is now gone. That the work of Christ's victory and the reality that He says it is finished is witnessed by an act of God in which He rips the separation. That which separates God from man and His presence from humanity is ripped in two. And thus you see the obsolescence of the old covenant as it rips apart the very barrier between God and man. And yet at the same time, you see the inauguration of the new. That it's not just a veil that's ripped. That it is Christ's flesh that is torn. That it is His broken body 
symbolizing the formal beginning of a new age in which Christ is the mediator between God and man. And that if you will enter into the presence of God, that you will enter in through Christ and through Christ alone. That now man is no longer separated from God. He no longer needs to go to a physical location and follow a necessary prescription and enter in as a Levite behind the veil to offer for the people. Now the veil is done. It's gone. It's, um, the, the work is complete. It's no longer necessary. The old covenant is null and void. It's obsolete. And Christ is the new and the living way is what the... Um, writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter number 10, and verse number 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest, how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience uh, and our bodies washed with pure water. The idea here is, is that, that, that that temple, that veil, it, it, it was representative of Christ. And through Christ there is this new and this living way. And as the old blood would be would be sprinkled upon the mercy seat for the atonement of sins. Christ Himself offers His own blood and even sprinkles your conscience with it, thus satisfying the debt that's owed. It's paid in full. You're forgiven of your sins. And now, the new and living way to approach Christ or to approach God the Father or to approach God in His presence, to be in His presence, is through Christ. It's through Christ. That if you are going to come to God, In the Old Covenant, you must come to Him through the veil. And now, if you want to enter into the presence of God in this new and living way, the only way there, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the only way is through Christ and through Him alone. And that that access is now open to all. Not a simple certain nation or a particularly priestly line, but all who come to Him, that the Spirit of God is poured out upon all flesh. And that all that come to Him, come to Him freely out of every nation, out of every tribe, and out of every tongue. That we are a royal priesthood, we are a holy nation, we are the temple of God, and by virtue of Christ's mediation, you and I and every man we can say faithfully too as we proclaim the gospel, that if you will come to Christ, you will come to God. You will enter in through the veil. That by which men were barred in ages past is now accessible to all through Christ, through His torn body, through His, broken, uh, through his torn flesh, through His broken body. We now have access into this fully and freely. Um, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Jesus. It is finished. We see the weakness of Christ. We see the work of Christ. We see the witness of Christ's work in victory. And what does this teach us? I thought you already taught us. Let's, let's bring it home a little. Just some personal application. I'll give you two points. What does it teach us, particularly that it's finished? That the finished work of Christ calls each of us to 
to a joyful faith and rest in Him. That's it. The finished work of Christ calls us to a joyful faith and an ultimate rest in Him. It calls all men to Him by faith. That the finished work of Christ calls to each of us for an all-out abandonment of all of our own efforts in our own salvation. That Jesus calls sinners through the work of Christ to lay down their swords, to lay down their hammers, to stop building, working, laboring, and fighting for their own salvation. As much as we honor here the American spirit and the idea of making your own way and taking care of your family and building and taking dominion, we must set that aside in, in respect to salvation. You know, we cannot just grit our teeth and bear it, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and according to the American way, work out our own salvation without Christ. There is no man, woman, and child in this world that has ever entered into the gates of heaven through any other veil. Um, Galatians chapter number 5 and verse number 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. Man, what a statement. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You say, what's he saying there? This is what he's saying. He's saying that you had one thing, salvation. And it's null and void. It's not salvation at all. That if you come to God, you will come by faith and faith alone. That's it. You will bring nothing else. You won't bring your intellect. You will not bring your skill. You will not bring your house. You will not bring your kingdom. You will not bring your business that you've worked so hard for. You won't bring your children. You won't bring uh, the fact that you were a good mother or a good father. You won't bring the fact that you had a, a, a membership on the role of, of any church and that you had a pastor and that you had this or that. And the fact that you led a Sunday school or you preached a few great sermons or you pastored for 30 years. You won't bring any of that. And say, God, let me in on the basis of this. Nothing. Nothing will you bring. Nothing but to the cross I cling. That if you come to God, you will come by faith and by faith alone. That to add one thing to salvation is to bind thyself to the entirety of the law. This is what he's saying. He's saying that if, if you're utilizing circumcision... Um, to accrue some type of status with God or righteousness by your works, then what you've done is you've become a debtor to the whole law. And that everything that is contained within the Old Covenant and the Old Testament that is required of man in his utter perfection will be required of you. So when you stand before God that day and you hold up your circumcision as some type of accolade, that behind you He will hold you to account to every single thing in your life, every thought, every action, and every deed. And the reality is, is that when that happens, you will all stand condemned in yourselves. But when a man comes to Christ, and he comes to Him by faith, 
He stands there alone with nothing but Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone. Um, that, 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 that Jesus is arguing in the Sermon on the Mount that, that, um, that, that unless your righteousness exceeds that righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's the reality. That if you think that some accolades or some rewards or some works that you have done just accrue any status with God or make Him love you more or will open the gates of heaven, you don't understand your own heart. Because they will not outweigh the evil that has been done. The only thing that will do that is the broken body, the torn veil in which provides access um, to God. That if you are to come by to Christ, to God, you will come by grace through faith and by faith alone. Um, it is not by works. It's not a salvation by works alone. It's not a salvation by fruit alone. It's not a salvation by ecstatic experience. It's not a salvation by emotional experience. It's by faith and faith alone. Not according to works, but according to grace. Not according to your emotions, not according to how you feel today, not according to the fruit that abounds all around you, um, not according to your ecstatic experience and what you think God may have done um, earlier in the day or last year or this and that. When you start measuring your salvation by that, you will always struggle with an assurance of whether you're saved or not. And I say that because I know some of you. And I say that because I know myself. That it seems like a humble thing to do. To look in the mirror. And pick apart your life. Um, this aspect and that aspect. Um, and try to be more like Christ. Um, yet at the same time. It is pride masquerading as humility. If you never stop looking at yourself. And start looking to Christ. You cannot save yourself. By prettying yourself up. On this day or that day. You know, and I see it particularly, I've talked to pastors and I see it in my own life and I worry about it with my own children and I worry about it with other children who have grown up in godly homes that they're looking for something like I have, you know. I don't know why God saved me other than that's just who He is and He's gracious, you know. It's easy for me some days to look in my life and just see this this. Not only gradual, but this drastic change coming out of a, a divided home, a, a divorced mother, drugs and alcohol, and just, and just a whole host of other things. And God just grips me. And, and, and people are looking for that. They're looking for some experience or they're looking for some drastic change. And, and, and the problem is, is that when you follow God's principles and, and, and you raise your children the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that, that they too, in some sense, look for that. They struggle with their salvation because they don't have that. You know? And I want to encourage you today, boys and girls, children, or, or, or older uh, adults who are in Christ and grew up in some type of atmosphere like that in which you've, you, you, you've, you've, um, you've always been seemingly faithful or, or what, however you want to kind of highlight that. That it's, that, that it's not by experience. Salvation doesn't come by the more that you do or the, 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 the relationship of your fruits or, or, or the more that abounds this or that. Assurance comes from those things, but not salvation. It's different, you know, that those things are grounded in Christ. 
We talked about it last week that as we abide in Christ, the ultimate goal is not to um, even necessarily be um, more faithful in this area or that area. It is to pursue Him. And as we are in His presence behind the veil in Christ, the fruit will abound because in His presence you will not be able to be a certain type of man. And in His presence, He will communicate to you divine character, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, self-control, and and a whole host of other things that are Christ-like and Christly. And and he He will produce that in you. But you must look to Christ. The goal is not to pursue the joy. The goal is not to be more loving. The goal is not to be more self-controlled. The goal is to find Christ and Him alone. It is to believe in Him. It is to abide in Him. And as you're abiding in Him, the fruit will abound. It will run wild on the vine and He will prune and more will grow as you are in Him. The the, the question today is not necessarily, does the fruit abound? Because fruit can lie. The question today is, is what is the root of that fruit? And is it, is it growing and abounding out of Christ? Listen, young person, listen, older person. The question today is, is do you love Christ? Is He your everything and all in all? Is He beautiful and majestic? And is the ground of your questioning because you're not like Him, which causes you to pursue Him? And as you pursue Him by faith, you see yourself more. If that's the case, take assurance this morning. Because the natural man does not believe the things of God. And the natural man do not love Christ. They love things of Christ. They love the things that he offers. It's like a spiritual adulterer, you know. Men and women today marry people for what they can do for them. They don't truly love them. And that's why so many people end up in divorce and marriages are falling apart across our land. You know why? Because we went in to be served and not to serve. We went in because we loved ourselves and and didn't love them. And it's evident in the reality that, 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 that we love the benefits of marriage, but not that person itself. So when she stops being, or she stops doing, or she stops this thing or that thing, we, we run for the hills and we'll find somebody that will love us more than she loves me. And it's selfish, it's self-provocative, it's idolatrous, it's godless, it's a love of self and it needs to be repented of. In similar ways, people adhere to Christianity because they love the fruit of it and not Him Himself. How else will you be hanging upon a cross with nothing unless you delight in the Father as much as He delights in you? How will you learn to be content when you've lost it all like the Apostle Paul, been beaten, battered, and bruised, left for dead, and forsaken by Demas, even the church itself? How will you stay faithful if what you love Is the prosperity of Christianity or the benefits of Christianity or the feeling of Christianity because there will be a day when that won't be there. And you will question whether you're in Christ at all. You'll question your salvation. Thus it is imperative that we cultivate a faith that that, that regardless of circumstances is rested solely in Christ. So that when those things are gone, I don't wonder what I love, you know. Take away the house, take away the cars, take away the church, take away everything, you know. Um, Take away um, my wife's ability to serve me. Take away, you know, God forbid that something would happen one day and leave her incapacitated. Um, You'll know whether I love her or not. Because I will be with her, I will stay with her. There's a question of whether I love her or I love the things about her and those things that she gives to me. 
That's when we begin to question ourselves. Why? Because we love the fruit of Christ more than we love Christ himself. Nothing will save you, church. Nothing will save you outside of Christ. Nothing will save you that Christ can give. Christ is the salvation. He is the one. He is the veil. He is the substance. He is the one to run to. And as you, and I'm not arguing for lazy Christianity, which, which you know, you, you don't produce fruit and, and that's okay and you can live any way that you want. What I'm saying is, is that when you're in Christ and you're in His presence, there is only one way that you must live. And that is with Him. And that is for Him. And, you can, and in those people, the fruit abounds because he imparts to those people his divine nature and characteristics and they become like him. And thus they serve like him. They live like him. But that's what he means in some sense when it is finished. That it's done. Not only in a chronological sense, meaning this, we can point to 2,000 years ago when Jesus died, but it's finished in the sense of, of, of each individual that is here today. And not only here today, but geographically and historically throughout the ages, that it is done. And that if you are going to enter into the very presence of God and be with Him, it will only be by salvation in Christ alone. There will be nothing else that you can bring. And when you do, you condemn yourself. And when, but when you lean wholly on Him, um, you are welcomed freely in the delight of the Father. Number two, not only does it teach us that we have, um, that, that it is finished, but it also teaches us now that we have access. It has access. This is what Nathan read this morning. It causes us not only to a joyful rest in Him for our soul salvation, because the work's done. But this text too calls us to a bold pursuit of Him for the remainder of our lives because the veil has been rent. You now have access. That place that men could never go. Men, you now in Christ can go freely and you can go boldly and you can go multiple times. You can go anytime throughout the day. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go through a ritual. You don't have to bring your own blood. You don't have to raise a lamb. You don't have to do all of these things. It was done so that you could go. That you could pray. That you could be in His presence. Okay, I know that we know that. But do we really know that? Or do we have a superficial knowledge of that? That condemns us and makes us guilty on days, on most days, because we don't go. We don't run to Him. He's not our true provider. He's not our true protector. He's not um, our refuge in a, a time of need or when we're not in a time of, of need, right? It's superficial. Maybe because it's hard to know God is your shield and refuge until God is your shield and refuge, right? Like it's hard to know where. To run to until you're in the midst of war. It's hard to know how to subdue the enemy um, until you're at war. And most of us are not at war. Most of us are not in need. Most of us are living the American dream. I know you get riled up because things are going awry. And I do as well. You have to turn off the news and take a a uh, Sabbath long you know, rest from all those things because it begins to enter into the mind. And we're all prepping for this and we're all prepping for that. And we just want to be faithful and I understand that. 
And yet at the same time, man, we are rich beyond measure. We are like Laodicea on some days. Um, just lukewarm, apathetic, and indifferent to the things of God. The reality being that we haven't ran to him in weeks. Right? Let's be honest with ourselves. You know? We have access. <laughs> we have access. We have access into the very presence of Christ. I mean, that utter place of delight and joy. We have that, 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 that holiness, that compassion, that grace. We have the opportunity right now to run to it, to go boldly, he says. That place where men could, could not go. Now you can go. You can know your Christ, your Savior, your Mediator, God the Father and the power of His Spirit in a unique way that men in ages past have not known. Because the veil has been rent and His presence is now open. I just want to say, men, so go. Go. Run to Him. Jesus Christ has died to purchase the benefit and the blessing for us all. And to fail to access the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit is a failure to see our true need of Him. And is, how do I put it lightly, sinful. Or maybe we could put it this way, to neglect prayer and running to God and being wholly dependent upon Him is just downright sinful. To neglect prayer is an expression of arrogance on our part because it represents an independence and autonomy apart from God's grace, which is, outright, which is an outright lie to the world. You've done nothing today without God. Even in your natural state. You didn't wake up this morning and exercise your own strength to get out of bed. The only reason that you're alive this morning and sitting before me is because He facilitated it. He held you up. He held me up. Our continued existence is only existing temporally here and now because He holds up us in every atom. The oxygen that sustains our lungs, the blood that flows through in an unconscious way on every cellular level, He holds it up. It is a direct insult to God to pretend like that never happens. Or to carry on our life and to build this kingdom without Him. It is incumbent then for us as Christians to exhibit a humility and recognition that if I have anything that comes from God and if I'm going to receive anything today, it's going to be wholly by His grace. But I have nothing to boast in, the Apostle says, because all things come from God. You know? I don't care if it's a business. I don't care if it's a family. I don't care if it's this. I don't care if it's that. Um, it doesn't matter how great it is. Um, it's all by God. And by His grace. And prayerless men are the worst of men. Because they are the proudest of men. They live life as if God doesn't exist. Maybe we can say it this. Prayerless Christians are the worst of men. Because they know the grace of God. They know the access that they have. And they know the creator of heaven and earth. And in some sense they suppress that knowledge. And that, that, that reality of knowledge. Such that they can live apart from Him. And they can work and labor without Him. That it's more than just simply supplying my needs. That you should run anyway. Say, I don't need anything. And you don't understand yourself. You don't understand the human nature. You don't understand. You know? Even if it wasn't simply to supply my needs. Say, never supplied a physical need. 
If we never gained an ounce more than we have in this world, we should still come boldly. Because Jesus Christ died for that blessing for his people. He died so that we could come. Thus, we should come simply to be in his presence and praise him now throughout all eternity simply because of what he accomplished on our behalf. So if there is no need, even if there technically was no need, there is a need to praise Him. Why? Because of who He is and what He's accomplished on our behalf. What a tragedy it is for us to have access to God Himself and never come. Imagine having pancreatic cancer and having a cure in the cupboard and never coming. Imagine a man allowing his family to starve to death while having $2 million in the bank. Why? For who cares? You'd say that man's a fool. Imagine a man allowing a dollar to be taken by petty thieves while he had access to a stocked gun safe upstairs. Why? Because he was afraid. And his heart was truly cold toward his daughters. Imagine a child adopted into a financially blessed house and, and, and he leaves on a daily basis to go out and find. Why? Because that's who he is. To find it elsewhere when it's all right there. Imagine a nation who allows its it's, it's, it's people to go awry and to destroy themselves when they have the ability and opportunity to protect. You'd say all these people are villains. Maybe they are. Why do we go week after week battling with the devil, needy in our souls, depressed and anxious, when he's made access by faith? And you run to Him. How do we do it? Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us this morning draw near. This text teaches us that we are to draw near. And as you draw near, that's what, um, that's what John 15 is arguing last week, wasn't it? Right? You abide in Christ, what happens? As you abide in Christ, you ask whatever you desire and He gives it to you. Why? Because in His presence you see your true need. It's not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that, that you can just ask God for anything and everything that you want. You know, they abuse that text. The idea is, is that as you abide in Christ, He infuses life to you by faith. You're in His presence. He makes you more like Himself. And, and, and as you look at Him in a, as a mirror dimly, you see yourself and you see your true need. Thus, you, you run to God for that. Men who say we have no needs are men who have not been in the presence of God this week. Men who don't know how to, to, to lead their families or what their families need or churches or what their churches need are men who have not been in the presence of God this week. Let us draw near. Let us run to Him. Let us go and let us go fast for anything and everything. And on many days when we don't know that we have a need, let us, let us find Him in the Word. Let us find Him in prayer. Let us find Him in fellowship. Let's find Him at the, in the house of God. Let's find Him at the table. Let's find Him in the baptism. Let's find Him wherever we can find Him. Thus that we may know our need and we may lean on Him and we may depend upon Him. Let us draw near. He is worthy. Let us draw near not because we are inherently needy, but let us draw near because He is inherently worthy. This morning, He's worthy to be praised. This morning we have 
Jesus Christ, the God-man who entered into the world, lived 33 years of his life, have the most horrible painting of the picture of his sufferings here. And he did this so that you and I, that it would be done and that we would have access. That we would be a people who were not his people. And we would have all that we need in Him. I love that. I, I, I think I, I mentioned that in prayer because as I was reading just this week in Romans chapter number 8, I don't know why, but I'd never caught the phrase in Romans chapter number 8. And um, um, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? never caught the with him, and I don't know why. He's not just saying that he gave you his son, so he'll give you all things along with that. He's saying that in his son, with him comes all things. That when you have Christ, you have it all. When you have Christ, all things come. And, and that's when you really begin to see that in this life, all that we have is all of Christ. And thus, let's run to him. Because in him, we find all things. This isn't a depressing sermon this morning. It's only depressing if we're not running after him. Because in him, John 15 as well, 1 John, right? In him, he, he, he speaks these words, why? So that your joy may be full. Right? Because you have fellowship with the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, by the power of the Spirit of God. So this morning, because we go to prayer in just a moment, let us run to him. Let us not just be pretentious. Let us not just be mechanical. Like, let us, let us bear our burdens. Let us enter into his presence. Why? Because you're needy, yes. But, but your true need is Christ. So let us run to him. And there is, in his presence, is fullness of joy forevermore, the psalmist says. And in that, you will be made like Christ. And if you're outside of Christ or you're wrestling with assurance today, I ask you, who do you love? What is the ground and basis of your assurance? Are you looking at everything else but looking at Christ? If you're looking at Christ, then, 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 then know today that, that, that you are in Him and that He is yours. And Stop worrying about losing Him because He will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, so let us run to Him now. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for Christ and for Christ alone. Father, there's so many things that we could just say now. Um, as we look at everything through you. And just thank you, Father, for everything. Um, I just want to thank you for Christ. Father, I want to thank you for the revelation of the Son. And I want to just rejoice in that. Father, I want to thank you that he was faithful when I'm not. I want to thank you that he was strong when I'm weak. I want to thank you, Father, for um, his wisdom because I'm foolish. I want to thank you, Father, simply for extending grace um, to sinners, Father, um, by faith. And even that faith, Father, we know is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. That salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So let no man here this morning boast. Father, let us throw ourselves and cast ourselves wholly on you, recognizing that if uh, we have any access to God, it's by Christ and Christ alone. 
Let us glory in the cross. Let us glory in the veil. Let us glory in the temple. Let us glory in all of these things, Father. Um, but not for our own salvation, but, but for Christ's sake. Those things are amazing to point us to him, but let us not lose him in the pursuit. Let's not cling to rituals and traditions. Let us cling to Christ this morning. Father, that we may see him and that we may be like him in some measure. You know, the fullness of that is coming. But um, in some measure, Father, transform our minds this morning as we seek to just glory in the majesty of Christ, abide in him, be in his presence. Father, I pray that you've made yourself known to the hearts of men this morning. And if not, would you make them known now? by your grace, that you would be worshipped in fullness, Father, in this place. May, it, may we not find the tragedy in our own hearts, Father, that we served Christianity for years and decades and never truly worshipped Christ. May that not dawn upon us when we stand before him on that great day. But may we find him now. And may the fear be real and true, yet only momentarily. Father, as we find Christ, and thus rejoice, because he truly is compassionate and gracious. In some sense, Lord, as the psalmist says, let us this morning again rejoice and tremble at the sight of God, particularly in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.